0: The following message by Shane Sowers is brought to you by Central Baptist Church, Aurora, Colorado. www.cbcaurora.com Today, we're going to start just a mini-series about the next three weeks. We're going to take a break from Psalm 119. We will come back to it, I promise. Uh, But we're going to just take a couple of weeks here for us to address a very uh, important topic. Uh, there was several people over the last couple of weeks that had come and asked me, um, you know, I, I, Shane, I appreciate that you preach the gospel every week, but can I ask, why do you preach the gospel every week? Um, And I was like, you know, actually, that's a really good question. And instead of me answering that question for you right now, this is what I'm going to do. We're going to take just a couple of weeks for us to just kind of talk about why the gospel is so important and why it is that we uh, spend so much time talking about it. Um, So fasten your seatbelts, because my experience as I go through this topic a lot of times when we hear about the gospel, we hear the gospel every week. We, we nod our head and we say, yes, yes, we want to hear the gospel every week. But then when I explain why we listen to and why we got to hear the gospel every single week, we don't really, I think a lot of us don't really understand what the implications of that are and what that means. And so we're going to flush that out a little bit with some things that may take some of you by surprise. Uh, for, for those of you that have been here since I've been here, uh, this shouldn't be as surprising to you, uh, but it will, it'll still be a good help and it'll refresh Refresh things. So today, let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. Why in the world, Jane, do you preach the gospel every single week? It is said, God does not move us beyond the gospel. He moves us more deeply into the gospel. Let me say that again. God doesn't move us beyond the gospel. He moves us more deeply into the gospel because all of the power we need in order to change and mature comes through the gospel. The gospel does not simply ignite the Christian life. It is the fuel that keeps Christians going and growing every day. Real change cannot come apart from the gospel. And I think that this is the part that surprises most people, a lot of people, right? The question was asked of me, why do you preach the gospel every single week when mostly everyone that comes to church are already Christians, Shane? And again, this is not an uncommon question. I get it. And I love it when these, this question comes because it gives me an opportunity to preach on the wonders of the centrality of the gospel in Christianity. You cannot progress in Christianity without the gospel. The idea is, is that some will say that the gospel is essentially the ABCs of Christianity, This is where we start. We start with the gospel, right? So you're an unbeliever, you hear the gospel, you became a Christian. Now it's time to move past the elementary teaching of the gospel and we need to move on to more interesting or more beneficial or more sanctification type works. Those types of things, we need to move on to that and move on to maturity and leave the ABCs of Christianity behind. Some have even said, hey, Shane, man, you preach the gospel. Once that individual is saved, throw them in the closet. You got them. They're done. Now move on to other things. They've even said those types of things. They believe it's the start of our walk with Christ. And after that, it's on the good works and maturity. But here's the reality. There are no good works and maturity without the gospel The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the A to Z of Christianity. So vital and so important it is that it cannot and it must not ever be neglected, never be diminished ever, and it cannot be assumed, should never ever make that common mistake that we make here in Christianity today, is we assume the people know God. The gospel. Can't do that. I can't tell you how many times I just blindly ask professing Christians to tell me what the gospel is. I say, can you just just real quick just tell me what the gospel is? And man, you will hear all kinds of stuff. The reality is, is that for a lot of people, they really don't know. Now, nobody here at Central Baptist Church should ever be caught. If somebody comes up to you and asks you, hey, what is the gospel? If you've been coming to Central Baptist Church, you hear the gospel every single week, and I summarize it using that one scripture in 1 Corinthians that everybody should know by heart that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what you should be saying. Okay, You hear all kinds of things like, you know, God came down, you know, and he wanted to bless everybody with unlimited, uh, uh, allegorically, an unlimited supply of hot dogs. you like hot dogs? Yeah, hot dogs are great. So, you know, he just wants everybody to have hot dogs for the rest of their life, and that's what he came to bring. I mean, you hear all kinds of stuff when it comes to the gospel, that Jesus came into this world to make sure that you're not poor, but to make sure that you are rich. You know, all types of stuff that comes when it comes to the gospel. So we never, ever, 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 ever assume that an individual knows the gospel. And here's something that's really interesting that, that's been been brought up in modern times is also not that people don't understand the gospel, but that people are, and this is the technical term that they use, are inoculated with the gospel. Whoa, what do you mean by that? That people have just enough gospel to think they got the gospel, but they don't truly have the gospel. We've heard it enough I got a little bit of it, so we just move on. I don't need it anymore, when in reality we don't have the fullness of the gospel, don't truly understand the gospel, so we are inoculated with it, and no matter what I do, no matter what I say, everything that I say when it comes to the gospel, it just bounces off of you and you're just like, hey, I don't need it, I don't need it, this is not for me. This is a very, very common issue when it comes to the gospel, in in, in modern evangelicalism today. It's super important, family, that we get this today. Super important that we get this today. This this will help us. Uh, A pastor, um, his name is Matt Chandler, he writes this. The litmus test of whether or not you understand the gospel is what you do when you fail. What do you do when you fail? Okay? Do you run from God and go try to clean yourself up a bit before you come back to the throne room, or do you approach the throne of grace with confidence? If you don't approach the throne of grace with confidence, you don't understand the gospel. And he says this, and I think this is key. You are most offensive to God when you come to him With all of your efforts, and you're still trying to earn what's freely given. We are more offensive to God. You know, we've sinned, we've failed, we feel like, okay, I'm offensive to God, so I don't want to go to God right now because I'm I'm really, I I just did a bad thing. You are more offensive to him if you think, hey, I did a bad thing, but I cleaned myself up. I'm super good. Now, I, uh, now I'm good. Now I can be in the presence of God. It reminds me, I, I think about this the time, like, like, what if we were trying to get into the most prestigious restaurant in the world? Here is the most prestigious restaurant in the world. And you assume that since it's the most prestigious restaurant in the world, that there's probably a cover charge. But in all actuality, to get into this prestigious restaurant, it's free. The owner of the restaurant is, hey, come in. So you walk up to the door. The doorman says, hey, it's free. Just come in. And you go, no, 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 no. I can't do that. I can't do that. This is a prestigious restaurant. I got I to gotta pay a cover charge. No, 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 no. No, no, no. You don't need to pay a cover charge. It's free. Just come in. No, no, no. I insist. Okay, here, here, here. Take this dollar. Here's $1, and then it will let us all in. And he's like, okay, that dollar bill is more offensive to that owner than us trying to get in for free. You understand that? It's like, you're trying to get in, you don't want to get in for free because you think that this is so prestigious that you got to give something to get in, but what you give is actually more humiliating to the owner than the free gift. That's what it is that we try to do. God's saying you can come in for free. But you say, no, no, no. I need to earn my way in. I'm going to earn my way in. So what am I going to do? I'm going to give you what I believe is adequate payment for me to come in. It's nothing we could bring, nothing we could do to earn anything when it comes to God's grace. But here's the thing. In our evangelical culture today, the gospel is either confused, it's convoluted, it's calloused, or it's cast aside. But this is not a new thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he studied for a year in New York City. He was uniformly disappointed with the preaching that he heard in New York. He said this, one may hear sermons in New York upon almost any subject. One only is never handled Namely, the gospel of Jesus. You can hear a sermon about any topic in New York City. He says, but the one sermon he never heard was the gospel. The gospel is wonderful. The gospel is marvelous. It's the greatest news ever heard. So why would we not want to hear it every single week? Well, Shane, you preach it every single week, man. He's like, we need something new. It's really funny with people that say that. I said, it's funny How you guys, people will say that they don't want to hear the gospel every single week because it gets old. But it's funny, I go to churches where they preach about money every single week, and that never gets old. Hmm. Hmm. The reality is, is that we cannot progress without the gospel. There is no maturity without the gospel. There's no sanctification without it. There is no union with Christ, which is what we need, without the gospel. So we see the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity, and I am going to show you why the gospel today. Colossians chapter 1 verses 5 to 6. Colossians chapter 1 verses 5 to 6. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it. And understood the grace of God in truth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for all that it represents. We thank you for the truth that we find in it. God, we thank you for the gospel. And I pray that it will penetrate our hearts today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you see in that passage of scripture, it's saying that the gospel is growing and increasing. Just like it has been doing in you since the day you first heard it. So right there, you see, Paul is making very clear, since the day you first heard it, he didn't say, hey, the gospel, you heard it, now let it go and move on to bigger and better things. No, he's saying, since the day you heard it, this gospel has been increasing and it has been growing in you. It's not over. Once we hear it, once we get it, it is not over. So the first thing we're gonna look at today is the necessary precondition of desire or want that must be given to us by God to live a godly life. Second, we're going to look at the necessary precondition of assurance that must be given to us by God to live a life as an imitator of Christ. And finally, we're going to hear the wonderful good news of the gospel of Jesus that brings to us our union, our beloved union with Christ. So, our thesis statement today is this though sin and the pattern of this world cause us to be blinded to the beauty of the gospel, it is the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Word of God that will show us all that is thrilling and causes even the angels to look in amazement. So point number one, the necessary preconditions, number one is desire. This is what we need from God before we can do what he called us to do. So what, this, what I'm saying here with the necessary preconditions for the next couple of weeks, these are things that we have to have in our lives before we can live a life of godliness, before we can live a life in holiness, before we can do what it is that God has called us to do. Because God desires us to live a holy life, right? (laughs) See, this is one of the things I want to make sure we got. You don't want to assume that we got this. But God desires to, for us to live a godly life, period. That is the desire. That's what he's called us to do. It's to be people who are conformed to his image, people who are saved to do or to, saved unto good works. God wants to see all of those types of things. That is, the go- that is the goal. That's what he wants for us, period. Ephesians chapter one, verse four. Ephesians chapter one, verse four. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God, that's what he said from the beginning. God chose us, that's what he called us. This is what he wants, us to be holy without fault in his eyes. So the message is clear and not only is the message clear, but the message is universal. Most, most, I would say all, if not most, if not all, in modern evangelicalism today will say that they agree that God wants us to live holy lives. But see, here's the thing that, that I feel like is really neglected, is the question is never really answered, and if it is answered, it's not answered properly. And the question is, How? Sure, we know God wants us to live a holy life. God wants all this stuff for us. But the question is, how are we supposed to do this? Because for those of you that have been Christians for a while, you realize that when you try to live a godly life, it's not that easy. And you wonder... Am I, am I messing something up? Is this something? Do, do I not understand? And what I found throughout the years is many of us, we don't understand how we're supposed to progress in our walk with Christianity. We know the destination. We know what we want to get to, but we don't know how to get there. And then here's the bigger question. Are we even able to get there? Wow. The question is given, but it's interesting what we hear when it comes to it. Even when it comes to the answering of some of those questions, like the popular teaching we hear today, the the popular thing called life coaching that we hear today, they all encourage us to live a holy life, but if you really listen to what they're saying, they do two things. Number one, they lessen the standard that God gives. And number two, they encourage us to do it by just trying harder. And let me give you some principles as how you can do a better job of trying harder. Let me help motivate you so you will want to try harder. Everything is try harder. But before they do that, a lot of times, one of the things that's really frustrating to me is how the standard of God is lessened. He lessened they lessen the standard of God so that it's easier for us to fulfill. But we can't do that. Let me give you an example. God tells us that we need to meditate on the, on the Word of God. Anybody know this? We meditate on the Word of God day and night. All right, good job. We meditate on the Bible day and night popular uh, life coach person I heard was saying, yeah, the Bible tells us that we need to you know, meditate upon the word day and night. So we don't just read the Bible every single day. What we need to do is we need to you know, read the Bible every single day, and we need to read the Bible every single night. Now, I know for a lot of you, that's really hard to do. So what I'm proposing that we do here is, why don't we try to do this? Why don't we try to meditate on the Word of God at least three times a week. If you can meditate on the Word of God at least three times a week, I think God will be happy, and God will be pleased with what it is that you're doing. Now, tell me that this isn't true. You hear this stuff all the time. Just, Just do it three times a week, and God will be good, and then hopefully you can work your way up to reading it at least every single day. So then they're like, okay, well, I read the Bible three times this week, I guess I did it. God, look, look how good of a job I did. I fulfilled your law. I read the Bible three times this week. You think God is happy with that? No, because God's standard is what? Day and night. Jesus told the rich young ruler, go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Well, that's really hard for us to do today. You know, we don't want to really empty out our bank account because I don't think that Jesus is really telling us that we need to empty our bank account and give it to everybody. I think what Jesus is really meaning is maybe instead of you buying a new car, buy a used car and the Lord will be pleased with our efforts. Now, did Jesus tell us to buy used things and not brand new things? No, he told us to go sell everything you have and come follow me. We lessen the standard of God in order for us to be able to feel like we're keeping it. This is is horrible. This is a horrible thing to do. What is it saying and what is it communicating to our God in heaven? That maybe he's maybe not as holy as we think he should be or maybe that he says he is. God tells us that we need to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Well, He's not really meaning perfect. I think we need to take the word maturity and, and use mature. He wants us to be mature as our Heavenly Father is mature. I don't care what word you use, perfect or mature. The standard is our Heavenly Father. So your, your standard of maturity is our heavenly father and his maturity is perfect. There's no way around it. Why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep trying to lessen the standard of God? So we lessen the standard of God and then we encourage, and if that's not the end of it, then they'll teach that you just need to try harder. So I come to church on Sunday because the pastor's gonna motivate me to do a better job because God wants us to do a better job. And then if we do that, we'll be a blessing to our community, blessing to the world, and blessing to God. We just got to try a little bit harder and he's going to help me to be better. The reality is the gospel communicates something different. Jesus didn't come into this world to make good people better. Jesus came in the world to make dead people live. That's the problem. We don't think we're dead. Puritan Walter Marshall, he writes this. He just did so well when he wrote this. He said, they tell themselves and others to keep the law, but they never even think of how they will be made alive and empowered to keep the law. They think they can just do it. They think the only thing they're lacking is effort and activity. They do not understand their real problem. And here it is. Here's what he says the real problem is. They have no ability to do anything good. Now, this is a hard one for us today. I get it. I understand. Some of you heard that and just be like, what, wait a minute. He said that I have no ability to do anything good. I don't have any, we don't have any ability to do anything good. See, this becomes so much more clear when we understand that God is, is more holy and more righteous than we realize. You think of the highest, holiest, more righteous thing. God is infinitely higher than that. And we, we um, also need to understand that the standards that God has, therefore, are the highest that there is. So when God is looking at good works the standard he gives for good works is the highest that there is. It requires perfection and it actually requires us meeting those standards. Again, Matthew chapter five, verse 48. Matthew 5, 48. But you are to be perfect even as your heaven and your father in heaven is perfect. This also becomes clearer when we realize that we are more sinful than we might realize that we are more corrupt than we realize, and that our ability to fix our situation is absolutely bankrupt. So this is the problem we have. God is so much higher than we think he is, and man is so much more sinful than we think we are. We give man too much credit, and we don't give God enough credit. We think it's okay to give God a dollar and he's going to let us in. For those of you that know the scripture, we think it's okay for us to give God our filthy rags, and he's going to let us in. The message is clear. The message is universal. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw, what did God see? He saw that everything they thought or imagined, was consistently and totally evil. When God looked at man, that's what he saw. Consistently and totally evil. That's how bad we were. That's how depraved we were. That's how bankrupt we were. Consistently and totally evil. Now, I remember telling an individual about this stuff, and the first response was, well, that's not true. So are you saying God's wrong? And he said, yeah. Well, if it's going to go down that road, then the conversation's pretty much over, right? Can we do anything about it? Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? I just thought of something that might have messed that up. You know, you guys remember Michael Jackson. Anyway. um, Can a leopard... Take away his spots, neither can you start doing good, for you have always done evil. So, super corrupt, God is super holy, right? So let's give credit where credit is due, super holy, transcendent, we can't even imagine, fathom how holy God is. And we got to take away some credit, (laughs) and man is sinful and corrupt. How corrupt? Super corrupt. So corrupt that man can't do anything about it. We're covered in mud, and no matter what we do, we just put more mud on us. There's no way to get clean. What do we need? We need the Lord by the power of His Holy Spirit to give us the ability to do what he's called us to do. We need the Lord to cause us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Is that biblical? Absolutely. Philippians chapter two, verse 13. Philippians 2, 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the one that's gonna make you want to do his work And God is going to give you the strength to actually do it. So the Bible is telling us right there, you can't do it. You can't do it on your own. So if you are going to do it, there is a necessary precondition that needs to happen before you can do good works. He has to make us able. Able for us to be able to do what he calls us to do. He has to work in us to make us able to be vessels of peace. He has to make us able to live lives worthy of the calling. He's the one that has to make us able to walk in step with the truth of the gospel. He makes us able because he is able. So what is it that we need to live a life worthy of the Lord? If you are taking notes, here's precondition number one. Get ready. It's super technical. You might have to have a college degree to understand this principle. So turn on your brains, get ready. I want to tell you this absolutely 100% complicated thing. The number one precondition that we have to have before we can live a godly life, you got to want to. (laughs) This is a huge one. This is a big one. Because we live in a society today where we follow our desires, man. We do today what we want to do. But you know what's funny? It has always been this way. It's always been this way. Mankind, we do what we want to do. Mankind, we are motivated to do things that we want to do. Now, come on. How many of us are motivated to get up, to go to the gym, to work out for two hours? wake up in the morning, maybe at first when we do our New Year's resolution, you know, January 2nd, we get there, we're all motivated, we work out, January 3rd, we wake up in the morning and we can't move, can't even walk, can't even get out of bed, so are we going to the gym, nah, 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 I'll go January 4th, January 4th comes, we're still sore, January 5th comes, you know, there's a new series that came out on Netflix. Well, let me check that out first and then I'll go back to working out in the gym. And then all these things and then we get to the point where we just don't want to go. Just not motivated. Not motivated to do things. We gotta want to. Even if we do, all that is required. See, right? We we have to set the standard of God high. Okay? We don't bring God down. We, We leave him where he is. Even if we do... All that is required, if we don't want to, then it's not what's required. The disposition of the heart is just as important as accomplishing the duty. How we do it is as important as that we do it. Give you an example. How we worship God is just as important as that we worship God, right? See, I think in our culture we miss that point. We think that as long as we're worshiping God... We're good. No. Does God make it clear that how we do it is important? Yeah, when, when we go to heaven, if they're there, you know, we can ask Nadab and Abihu about how we worship. I, I'm sure they got a huge sermon that they can preach on the importance of how we worship God. How can we really be obedient to God's law if we hate the law or we just don't like the law of God? It's like, oh, here's another sermon on the law of God. Oh, shit, Pastor Shane's up here going to talk about stuff that we got to do. And he's going to tell us how we can't do it. And we use all this stuff. It just depresses me to hear more stuff about the law. I don't like the law. The law just doesn't. But you know what? I guess if I got to do it, I got to do it. I'm not even sure it's true. We have to love. We have to. I can, I can obey God. And I can fulfill his law. And I don't have to love him. I don't have to like him. I don't have to like it. Is that true? No, you absolutely have to like it. You absolutely do. Why? Because let's remember, Jesus summarized the law into two things. Anybody take a guess what those two things are? We have to love God we've got to love our neighbor. How can we be godly or do anything godly if we actually hate or are indifferent to God? How can we do anything godly or be holy if we actually hate or are indifferent to your neighbor? But I love God. Do you? But I, I, for sure I love my neighbor. Are you? Well, maybe some of them. And let's see how well you love your neighbor you know, when the Christmas rush starts here in a couple months and people start taking the parking spot that you drove around the block to get to and then they pulled in. It feels like sometimes, you know, when people got their, their, their presents that they bought for Christmas and they're at the mall and you see them walking to their car and then you know it's their car because they push the button and their, the lights flash so they know they just they undid it. And then they see that you want the parking spot so they go. Hmm. It's like, I I know I'm exaggerating it, but that's how it feels like sometimes you're waiting for this parking spot and everybody, they just realize that you want their spot and they just do everything slower. Ugh. Christmas spirit. (laughs) Everyone talking, we gotta get the Christmas spirit. I said, no, we got the Christmas spirits. All right. Definitely there. In reality, we do what we want. Our desires is what motivates us. There's a huge philosophical uh, principle, or system of ethics that is, rests specifically on this. We'll take medicine that we don't like because ultimately, you know, because people will say, well, you do what you want. But no, 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 Shane, sometimes we do, we do things that we don't want, right? Well, I got to do stuff that I don't want to do. But we do the stuff that we don't want to do because ultimately... It's going to help us get to what we really want. So we'll take medicine that we don't like because, we're ultimate, because we ultimately want to live a better life. I, I think of this example, it's kind of a dated one, but you're watching TV, you're really into what's happening on TV, you hear thunder going, but your clothes and your sheets are outside drying on the line. I know we have dryers today, so this is kind of dated, but it's out there. So you're, okay, I should probably get the clothes Before it rains. But I don't want to leave this TV show that I'm watching. Hmm. You know, and it's dated because, you know, you can always stop it and TiVo it or something, right? So it's dated, but just follow me here. Then we have to make a decision. Ultimately, what's going to win? What you really want. So do you, if you really, really want, want to watch the TV... The TV show, you're willing to let the the clothes get wet when it rains. But if the reality is, is that you really don't want the clothes to get wet, you'll stop watching the TV show. Ultimately, we're motivated to do what it is that we want. We will serve God. And we're going to do all the things that we don't want to do because we know that in the end, we will be rewarded with eternal life and mansions and glory. We will do all the stuff we don't like so that we can have bliss in heaven. But the reality and what I'm trying to tell you today is there will be no reward if that's the way we're approaching it. We got to want it. If we don't want it, then there is a problem See, we need to see how far we have fallen and we need to see that God's standard will not be lowered for our sake. When we see the reality of this, we will see that our worst enemy is not the devil. It's ourselves. I often say that I think the devil is one of the persons that are most, you know, falsely accused of all the creatures in this world. I had an aunt that blamed the devil for everything. Most of the time, I'm looking at her going, I don't think the devil had anything to do with this. We are capable of doing all of these things, and even worse than we think we're capable of doing, on our own. We're looking at God saying, hey, but the devil, he did this, and the devil's over there going, Ah! I, I, was, I was in the Caribbean when that happened. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. 1 Timothy 1, 5. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Because the source of our desires is what the Bible will refer to as our heart. But if the problem with mankind, according to the Lord, is that all the intentions of our heart is only evil continually, then we've got a humongous problem. We can't have that. And here's the other thing, we can't do anything about it because it's so corrupted um, uh, the heart of a man is more deceitful above all things family it can't be fixed galatians chapter 5 verse 17 galatians 5:17 the sinful nature wants to do evil which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. There it is. Bang. What we need is we needed a new heart. So here's a necessary precondition, number one, desire. It's messed up. So what we needed is we needed a new heart. And this is not a transplant. This is something that only God can give us. Only God can do this. Only God can give us a new heart. So the question then goes, well, you know what then? We're not going to be able to do what it is that God wants us to do if he doesn't give us a new heart. So if he doesn't give us a new heart, I can't do it. So the question is, Christian, did God give us a new heart? The gospel makes it abundantly clear. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 27. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 27. And I will give you a new heart heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. God knew we needed a new heart. So that's exactly what he gave us. So people will be like, well, but Shane, in Romans chapter 2, God wrote the law in everybody's heart, so we already had the law on our heart. Yeah, so we know the law. Every single individual knows the law. Well, then what's the difference with this, with God giving us a new heart then? The beauty about this passage of Scripture is when God gives us a new heart, a tender, a responsive heart, the rendering that we see there, essentially what he's saying is, I am going to make you want to serve me. I am going to make you want to obey me. This is what's going to happen when I give you a new heart. You don't like my laws, but when I give you a new heart, you're going to love my laws. Just like the psalmist in Psalm 119, how he loved the law of God, how he treasured the law of God, how he found pleasure in obeying God and obeying his commands. Even David, you know, with the, he's got less revelation about God than we had, unless he, went, unless he was inspired. Psalm chapter 51, verse 10, Psalm 51, 10, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Even David knew that he needed a new heart a clean heart. Our hearts need to be changed in order for us to be able to live and do and have our being in Christ as we walk with the Lord as disciples of Christ. God is not okay with defiant, indifferent obedience. He requires cheerful givers. We must come to the Lord, to the law of God, and and love the law of God and hate our sin. We must love God and His law. There is no, no one having one without the other. If we don't love God, then we don't want to love Him, or we don't don't want to love his desire, the, the commands, the laws. He desires us to follow it with enjoyment. You cannot do good without the desire. So no matter how good we think it is that we are doing, we're not doing. Well, let me give you an example. You don't love the law? We turn away from the law? Proverbs chapter 28, 9. Here's the question. Is praying a good thing? I think we would all agree, yeah, Shane, praying is a good thing. We want to pray. God commands us to pray. God wants us to pray. Well, what does Proverbs 28, 9 say? If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. If our heart is not right, we can't do anything good. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity It's the A to Z of Christianity. It's not good advice. The gospel is good news. Point number two, the necessary precondition. Number two, what we need from God before we can do what he has called us to do. Number one, we need a new heart so he makes us want to. Number two, we have to absolutely be assured that we are forgiven and reconciled to God. I'll tell you this right now. If you are not sure That you are forgiven by God. Number two, if you are not assured that you are reconciled to God, you will never be able to do good works for God. This is huge. This is huge. Hopefully, this is, I'm hoping that it's resonating with some of you as you see this, you recognize this. But Shane, this is one of the areas in my life that I doubt. Yeah, this is the reason why you're going to have a lot of problems with this. The Bible makes it very clear. Christ wants us to be assured of our salvation. He wants us to be sure of it. He wants you to know for a fact that you are a Christian. Why? Because if you don't know this, you don't believe this, then you will never be able to do anything good for God. Not. We have to be assured. We have to believe that we are truly Christians or all of the good that we do will be works righteousness. If you're not sure, then your motivation for doing good is always going to be tainted with, if I do this, God's going to be happy with me. Come on. Family, I, I grew up in this. I grew up in this, where... It was like on purpose, man. It was like I would hear a sermon, I'd be hearing the gospel, but the preacher would just do this one thing at the end. So hopefully that's you. Hopefully. Wait, so am I a Christian then? I don't know, Shane. What are your plans tonight? Hmm. And I was always like, every single thing I did There was always this motivation, like, I need to do this so that God is happy with me, I'll go to heaven. But if I don't do this, God's not going to be happy with me, and he might not let me in. That there's a possibility, you know, that if I go to this concert tonight, if I die, I'm going to walk to the pearly gates, and, you know, God's going to say, uh-uh, sorry, I changed my mind. every single thing we do, if we are not sure, every single thing we do is going to be laced with that idea that I am trying to do something to gain favor with God. That's worth righteousness and that is absolutely offensive to our Heavenly Father. And how offensive it is for us to think that that little thing that you did actually earned anything when it came to God. Do y'all realize Here's something, a side note. You all realize, right, in that parable, we can't do anything to put God in our debt, right? We can't do it. We can't do it. Remember the unworthy servant? What master servant does his job? What master's going to be like, wow, great job. Why don't you come sit down and have dinner with me? No, the master's going to say what? Go get me some food so I can eat. And then after I'm done, then you can sit down and you can have dinner. If we obey, here it is, if you obey the law of God perfectly, like today you say, you know what, I'm going to obey God's law and I'm going to do it perfectly. And you, let's say you actually do it. And then you die. And then you go to heaven and I'm just like, yeah, man, I did it. I successfully, perfectly kept the law of God I didn't do it at first, but I did it at the end. I was successful. And you stand before God. God says, well, why should I let you in? And you go, because I kept the law perfectly. You know what God's going to say to us? Good job. You only did what you were supposed to do anyway. Isn't that what God commanded us to do? To obey him, follow him perfectly. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? That's the point of the parable. All we can say is that we are unworthy servants. We only did our duty. We only did what we're supposed to do. The gospel is what brings us to that place where we become assured of our salvation. Now, I know this goes against much of what we've learned over many years of preaching that we've listened to, I know. So hang with me here. The gospel message of forgiveness and justification are seen by many to be a doctrine that causes people to neglect godly living. This is why I'm encouraged by some, like, Shane, you can't preach the gospel like that. If you preach the gospel like that, people are going to leave the church today believing that they can do whatever they want to do and God's going to be okay with. That's what people are going to believe. They're going to believe that they want, they're going to be able to do whatever it is that they want to do. This will turn people into lawless people. They will do whatever they want and still believe that they're going to go to heaven. I was even told by many preachers, the only way you're going to get people to really obey God is you've got to make their obedience a condition for receiving salvation. Preachers have told me this. You cannot do that, Shane, because you will never be able to motivate anybody in your church to do anything. Hmm. But you know what? All the guys that do this All the preachers, especially in Hawaii, this was a big deal when I was in Hawaii. All the preachers that preach that that says that your obedience is a condition for your salvation, everybody in the church is working. Everybody in the church is doing stuff. They meet their goals for offerings, they meet their goals for evangelistic outreaches, they meet their goals, they everybody brings food to the potluck, because if you don't bring food to the potluck, then you're gonna you know, God's not gonna be happy with you and you might not go to heaven. Everybody that showed up had food, man. Yeah. So were they lying to me? No. Well then Shane, why don't you do it? Because it's not true. So you would risk having a church where nobody does anything and nobody's obedient because you you want to preach the gospel. Yes, why? Because it's true. It's the truth. I'm like, yeah, you got people doing a lot of work in your church. But what good is that going to do when they all go to hell? You see? It's not, and I I kid you not, family, I have to fight that. I'll be honest. I'm being honest with you right now. I have to fight that, man. You know, sometimes i would be thinking like, oh, I need people to do this, this, and this. And you know what? Maybe I should lay off the gospel a little bit here. And I should say this, 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 and this, and if they don't do that, they're going to burn in hell for eternity. That'll motivate some people. But you know what the reality is, family? Something really does backfire with this. I've been a Christian long enough. Many of you have been Christians for a long time. You've been Christians long enough to see that when you're under this kind of teaching, something backfires, doesn't it? Something goes awry when it comes to this. Something goes wrong. What people see deep down inside when they're honest with themselves is that all of their efforts are really empty and it's really destructive. What ends up happening for a lot of these people is they become hypocrites and they become very judgmental. They also become hardened by legalism. Now, come on. Do you guys know, seen, probably experienced some people in the church who are very, very judgmental? You've probably experienced people who are hypocritical. Probably see it. They become hardened in legalism. And you know what? You guys have probably seen people in the church that are just mean and nasty people. I've said it once, I'll say it again. Some of the nicest people in the world I have ever met, I met in the church. Some of the meanest, nastiest, horrible people I have ever met, I met in the church. Now, one thing that's interesting is I'll talk with some of these individuals and they all believe that their obedience is a precondition for their salvation. The gospel has not penetrated their hearts. In the end, they end up hating the church, and in a lot of ways, they end up hating God himself. It was understood even by the great Martin Luther, the reformer Martin Luther, he was intense. He was an intense law keeper if there ever was you're not going to find anybody that had ever lived in history that tried to keep the law more intensely than Martin Luther. That's, that's essentially what Dave said. He did everything in his power and his efforts to keep the law without fail. But then he was starting to struggle in life, and he said that he had no joy. Why, am I, why don't I have any joy? So he went and he sought counsel from the higher-ups, and he, said, he talked to them about his struggle. He talked to them about his anxiousness. Talked to them about his depression and his discomfort. And his, his mentor said, well, you know what you got to do, Martin? You got to just stop the stuff. You just got to love God. And Martin's famous response was, love God. I hate him. This is what this drives you to. But why is this? Because scriptures will make it clear in our studies concerning the law of God. The reality of this is, the more you still believe that you are under the curse and you are under God's wrath, the more we understand the, more we understand the perfections and the excellence of God, the more evil he's going to seem to us. Seriously, think about that. If you've believed that you are under God's condemnation and you believe that there's a possibility that you're still going to face His wrath and His judgment, every single time you learn more about God, more about His perfections, more about His excellence, more about His glory, more about His holiness, He's going to appear more evil to us than good. It's just going to make matters worse. Because again, when we see the true nature of the holiness and transcendence of God, we realize that it will take so much more than we have to meet his high standards. And the more we study biblical anthropology, understanding man, we see the true nature of the fall of man and see how depraved, how corrupt, and how incapable we really are. The chasm becomes just too great, and we become discouraged, and God becomes more and more our enemy than our friend. So how can we really obey the law of the Lord if we continue to be suspicious of God and always wondering if we're doing enough or we're doing the right thing, a constant insecurity with the Lord, and this will always result in a hypocritical obedience, just like the kind Pharaoh had when he let the people of Israel go against his own will. Hypocritical disobedience is what we find. That's not obeying God. You can't do it if that is the foundation fundamental to our motivation. We will never truly be obedient to the Lord if we function from a slavish fear of a fickled God, a hard to please God who is waiting and watching for every single opportunity for, us, for him to catch us doing something wrong so he can judge us so that he can condemn us. As long as that's there, that's how it's always going to feel. Therefore, our love for Christ must be won and drawn out by our understanding of the love of God and his goodness towards us. What do you mean, Shane? 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If we don't get and understand and are assured of the love of God, the forgiveness of God, and us being reconciled to God, we're not going to truly love. One of my preaching professors, Dr. Brian Chappell, he used to say, we do not obey God to become his child. We obey God because we are His child. That's a huge difference, isn't it? Huge difference. We have to be assured. We have to be assured of his forgiveness and that we are reconciled to him, that we are truly a child of God, adopted by the Spirit of God, and we can call him Abba, Father. We can call him our daddy. So you see, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z of Christianity. It's not good advice. It's good news, family. To love God means that He is the ultimate thing that really matters to us ultimately. He is the reason for our greatest joy and happiness. We love Him as our ultimate Lord and our Master. We love every single thing about Him. We have absolutely no hint of desire for him to be any better than he is already. We want his will to be done so much so that we will do it no matter what it costs us. We want his will, whether it's prosperity or suffering, whether it's life or whether it's death, we always rejoice in him and we want to obey him in all things. He is the greatest pleasure in our lives. That's what it means to love our God. But again, we can only do this because we've learned that he first loved us. Did we learn this? Is this really true? Can we really be assured? Yes, we can. It is called the gospel of Jesus. Why do you preach the gospel every single week? That's why. That's why. It's the greatest news ever told. Without the gospel, we have no union with Christ. We are not filled or empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to do these things. Seriously, for real? Like through our own power and your own strength, you're going to be able to love your enemy? That's always one that's puzzled me. God says we're supposed to love our enemies. Oh, yeah, because people do that all the time. Right? I mean, last night I was, I was blown out of my, when I saw, I'm, I'm watching TV and I'm seeing what's going on in Israel. And I'm just like, man, this is just never gonna stop, is it? Are, are we ever going to be able to love our enemy? Well, I'll tell you this right now. The Bible makes it very clear. If God doesn't do that work in you, you will never be able to love your enemy. That's why the gospel, that's why the gospel is so important. That's why we've got to hear it. We have always got to be refreshed of the idea of what Christ has done so that our motivation to do what it is that we need to do comes from our reliance and faith in God that God will do that work for us. So yeah, I know, family, I know, I get this all the time. Well, you know, and I, and I always fear hearing this stuff from my kids even, you know, and I think one of them even said this to me once and I, I wanted to throw her out of the window. So I just said, I said her, so it narrowed it down to my two daughters, right? where it was just kind of like, well, I can't do it, Dad. Well, why not? Because God hasn't made me able to do it yet. Do you know how hard it is as a father to have to sit there and go, yeah. That's true. So you know what we're going to do? My little angel, my child of God, we don't obey to become children. We obey because we are children. We're going to pray that God is going to give you the strength. He's going to give you the grace so that you can continue to progress and be obedient to the Lord today. It's got to be God. I can't have my daughter being afraid of, afraid of, of disobeying me because she's afraid that dad is going to drop the hammer. That's not going to help her when she's an adult when the dad can't drop the hammer anymore. What's she going to do when she's grown up and she's on her own and doing her own thing? We have to teach them to follow God and the strength to follow God comes not by fear of earthly punishment, but because God enables us to do that. Here it is. John Bunyan. Anything John Bunyan writes, you should read. Pilgrim's Progress is the big one. Read Pilgrim's Progress, it's awesome. Some Anabaptists got to John Bunyan when John Bunyan was in prison, hanging out in prison. Some Anabaptists came in. Okay, and, and remember, Southern Baptists, we are not descendants of the Anabaptists. Okay, just get that straight. Some of us think we are, but we're not. Here's the thing the Anabaptists thrown into prison with John Bunyan. And they started to have a theological conversation. I love it. You know, one of the things that's funny when you read church history is all the theological conversations and all the theology that came out of guys having conversations in prison. <laughs> it's just it. Anyway, um, I wonder if it's like that today. Um, but the Anabaptists came and they said, John, we have an issue with you. You preach the gospel like that and you let all these people off the hook you preach the gospel like that and all of these people are going to believe they can do anything they want to do. Right? That's a common thing we have today. John Bunyan, I don't know how he did it, but I like to think that, you know, his face covered in dirt, you know, sulking because he's starving, and folds his hand and looks at them and he goes, No. If you preach the gospel like that, then God's people are gonna wanna do what God wants them to do. Huge! You preach the gospel like that, people are gonna do whatever they wanna do. No, you preach the gospel like that, then God's people are gonna want to do what God wants them to do. That's what's awesome about Christianity. That's why the gospel is so great. It encourages God's people to want, to want in the assurance of faith of their salvation and reconciliation to want to do what it is that God wants us to do. The reality is the Bible shows us our shortcomings. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands, no one seeks God. All have turned away and have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. The wages of sin is death. We are all by nature children of wrath, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal darkness, eternal fire, outer darkness, And the mercy and love of God was shown. How in the world was God's love shown to us, Shane? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died. While we were rebellious and defiant to God, shaking our fists in his face, he sent his one and only son to the cross to die for our sins. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation For our sins. Family, this is the wonderful news of the gospel, how God came to seek and save that which was lost. He gave us life and life more abundant, not by anything that we did, lest anyone should boast, but because of his grace and the sacrifice that was made by Jesus on the cross. How awesome and wonderful is this? So be encouraged today. Don't let the world steal the truth of the word of God from you today. You don't have to. We don't have to be concerned. We, God's standard is there. We don't have to bring it down. Do you know why we don't have to bring it down? Because God gave us the most awesome thing. He gave us a righteousness that meets that standard. Is it a righteousness of our own? no. It was the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us, that's given to us. He who began a good work in you will be faithful and just to bring it to completion on the day of the Lord. It is God who will cause us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So family today, fix your eyes upon Jesus because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Thank you for listening and may the Lord bless you and keep you. For more information about Central Baptist Church, go to www.cbcaurora.com.